0: Welcome, 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 everybody. Good morning, Nathan. Welcome to the holiday weekend in churches where everybody goes and eats too much and is still dealing with a turkey hangover. So that's the way it works. So before we get started today, I want you to participate with me and I want you to reach in front of the, uh, the chair in front of you in the seat back pocket. Unless you're in the front row, and then you'll have to reach behind you. And I want you to get out one of the pieces of paper that says, take note. It's just a simple piece of paper. I want everybody to take one out. And I want you to grab a pen, and you might have to share it with your neighbor, but that's fine. I want you to take that piece of paper out and grab a pen. And what I want you to do on that piece of paper, each person individually, is I want you to write down something that you hope for. Something that you hope for. (laughs) Whatever you want, Lance, whatever you want. I want you to write down something that you hope for. Do not put your name on it. Santa knows who you are. Anyway, no. So do uh, do not put your name on it. You can put my name on it. That's perfectly fine. Go ahead and write down something that you hope for. Then what I want you to do is the people in these two sections here, I want you to pass them towards the center aisle here, and Mark Ryan Jr. will be picking those up. And for the people in these two sections, I want you to pass them in this way, and Mr. Jerry Clust will be picking those up, and he is going to bring them to me. They are going to bring them to me. Something that you hope for. You can fold it. You can do whatever you'd like. Something that you hope for. Mark is going to take them and read them as he walks down the aisle, which is very, very intimidating. But anyway... <laughs> No, he's not. Yeah, that's, that's what we're going to do. And then I'm going to make all kinds of facial expressions as to the weird things you all hope for, no. Um. I know. Yeah. And grab those over there. Do you have one? No, you're good. Thank you. I love how uh, Mark and Emmy did not listen to instructions. This is a connect card and not a take note <laughs> card, but that's okay. That's all that was it, sure, it is. L- Lauren seemed to get it, so I don't know what you're talking about. Very good, sir. Very good. Very good. Thank you, Mr. Clust. Lots of hopes there that I will leave right there for the time being. Scatter those across there. That's very nice. So over the next five weeks, we're going to be launching into this time of Advent. And over these weeks, we're going to be talking about five key concepts that are associated with Advent, with this coming of Jesus incarnate, coming of Jesus as a child, Uh, In this week's message, we're going to be dealing with hope, and we're going to focus on uh, what that is, uh, a little bit of what that is not, as well as uh, a very important concept that we often overlook with regard to hope in our culture. So this week is all about hope. Next week, we're going to be talking about the theme of peace. And so we will zoom in on what it means for there to be peace on earth according to what Jesus has done and what he is about. The following week, week three, uh, Dylan Adams will be speaking on the theme of joy. And so we'll be exploring what that looks like according to a biblical worldview. And we'll be dealing with what that is in contrast to mere happiness. In week four, we're going to talk about the theme of love. Um, and then finally, in the final week, which will be December the 24th, which is New Year's or Christmas Eve, and we are going to be having service Christmas Eve morning at our normal time. So I encourage you guys to be here for that, and we're going to celebrate uh, King Jesus that morning. And we're going to be talking about the theme of light. That's what we're going to be uh, focusing in on, the light of the world come to uh, dispel the darkness and to shine for all of us. Now, one of the reasons why Advent is so important to me and uh, other, uh, other traditional or sacred holiday moments within the church uh, are actually because there is something missing in the modern church. The, I, I believe that the sacredness of, uh, of key things uh, has gone missing in the church today. And it's a shame because there are things that we need to uh, draw our attention back to, uh, to focus our eyes and our hearts and our minds towards so that we can remember why it is we celebrate what we celebrate, uh, so that we can remember who we are in many respects, um, so that we uh, we can know the story and the message that we actually are called to proclaim in the world. And so, uh, Steph and I were working on this over the past week, and, and we did a huge Advent thing a couple of years ago and focused on uh, some aspects of Advent that I think many people forget about, and, and this time, we're looking at this to really try to recapture the beauty of what this season is all about. How many of you would say, just by a show of hands, how many of you would say that it feels like we've lost the heart or the spirit or the idea of Christmas. How many of you would say that? Yeah, look around. Like most of you would say that. And so what we want to do instead of harping on that and saying that, that that's awful is to look at it and say, okay, how do we recapture the glory of it? How do we recapture that which is sacred and celebrate that which is sacred and beautiful and, and begin to um, begin to enjoy it so that hopefully we can influence the people that are immediately uh, around us? Well, what we do is we look back to what God says, uh, the themes of this season are, the, the point of the season is, uh, and why we're here. And so we're going to try to recapture that the best we can. So I encourage you to just to, to give yourself to this idea. Uh, and again, today, the, the, the big theme, the big concept is the concept of hope. So as we start today, what I want to do is I want to uh, explore the biblical concept of hope, Uh, with uh, an emphasis on the anticipation of the Messiah that was promised through the Old Testament, King Jesus uh, come to us, uh, incarnate. And I want to talk about that in contrast to a worldview of hope that was present in Jesus' day, but I believe is still holding on uh, in our day today. So we're going to be talking about the contrast between biblical hope and the Greco-Roman philosophical view of hope. Biblical faith rests on a very important notion, and that is trustworthiness. But not trustworthiness in anything, it's a trustworthiness of God. And that is a trustworthiness of God that he is a promise maker and a promise keeper. Guys, this is the beauty of who God is. The biblical view of hope is, in this respect, significantly different from that which is found in ancient Greek philosophy. Uh, the Greeks recognized that human beings expressed, both, uh, expressed hope by their sheer nature. We are hopeful beings, if you will. However, this kind of hope that the, the Greeks talked about was a hope that was expressed um, and was reflected both in good and in bad experiences. In a large degree or to a large degree, the hope that we're referring to in the Greco-Roman world was, was fatalism. Life is going to happen. It is what it is. How many of you have heard Mark Williams say that? Yes. Okay. So, right, or me. I mean, it, it, it is a funny statement, but, but it, is, it is something that captures this kind of uh, submission to the way of life, okay? And so hope reflected both good and bad experiences. The future was, therefore, a projection of one's own subjective possibilities, Okay? It's very subjective. Whatever, whatever will be, will be. Right? The Greek philosophical view of hope is multifaceted, so I want you to, I want you to hear the nuances of this. Uh, while explicit and, syst, uh, and systematic uh, discussions of hope are actually limited in ancient Greek philosophy, it's not like people sat down and said, here's our understanding of hope, there are certain themes that emerge from key works, philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. Let's deal with one here. Greek philosophers, including Plato, uh, link hope to the concept of the good life, okay? So everybody wants to live the good life, right? Virtue and wisdom are emphasized as an essential component of a good life. Right? So, so uh, like we would have any virtue, wisdom or any virtue, hope was considered something like that. So hope is seen as a factor that motivates individuals to pursue virtuous, wise actions. Okay? So I, I, I don't know how else to explain this, guys, Then hope was this kind of weird, subjective feeling inside of you. Okay? And so it motivated you towards virtue and towards the pursuit of wisdom. The Greek philosophical perspective on hope delves into various psychological phenomena as well. Plato's uh, Philebus, uh, for example, positions hope among concepts like memory or recollection or pleasure or pain. So just like you recall something, hope is like that. It just, it's a thing that happens inside of you. This psychological approach adds a deep complexity to the understanding of hope inside of a human experience, though. Because it doesn't make sense where it's coming from, it doesn't always make sense of what it's about. Uh, Early Greek literature, including the works of uh, Hesiod's, uh, in Hesiod's depiction of Pandora's jar, includes an ambivalence surrounding hope. The dual nature of hope, right, It, it stands for that which is good and that which is bad, can bring comfort, but this weird view of hope actually can also betray us. Uh, right? And so this is the ambivalent side. This ambivalence is reflected in the philosophical views emphasizing the need for cautious optimism. How many of you say, well, I'm hoping for this in the future, but I'm going to keep my mind open because it might completely suck, right? This is, that's kind of the way we approach it. This is a Greek view of hope, church, okay? Uh, Heraclitus The philosophy of Heraclitus, uh, he was a pre-Socratic thinker. He continues the Greek view of hope, though, and there's an important distinction that I want you to see here. Heraclitus incorporates hope into his paradoxical worldview, highlighting its role in situations of uncertainty, right? So we don't know the outcome. He suggests that hope involves a form of trust. Well, that sounds close to what we believe. It involves a form of trust and openness... To the unexpected, that's what you're trusting. You just can't know, right? And so the unexpected is most likely what's going to happen. Connecting it to the mysteries of life and death. So in many ways, hope not only was subjective, it was this mysterious endeavor that was connected to virtues in some strange way. Now, if you're anything like me, you hear that and you go, that doesn't make much sense. And yet you live by it in very odd ways. Okay, And so we're going to draw the distinction here between that kind of hope and what the biblical hope was actually pointing to because we're going to get to a really important concept when we talk about hope that is, it's not revolutionary, it's, it shouldn't even be surprising to everybody, but it is, it is deeply missing inside of the Christian world. Biblical hope, however, avoids subjectivity, By being founded on something that provides a sufficient basis for confidence in its fulfillment. Okay? This is where we're going to get to uh, the definition of faith and the understanding of hope in a really big way. God and his redemptive acts, as they culminate in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, serve as hope. Okay? This is the concept of hope. Hope, therefore, is something like this. This is just something for you to ponder. Hope is something like the confidence that by integrating God's redemptive acts, so what God has done in the past, with trusting human responses in the present, people responding to God and people responding to him in the scriptures and things like this, the faithful will experienced, uh, the faithful, us, we will experience the fullness of God's goodness both in the present day And in the future. But notice what I just said there. We will experience the goodness of God in the present and in the future. You guys have written out a lot of hopes here. And I want you to understand that these hopes will most definitely at some point, someone's hope here will represent the Greek worldview of hope. Which is really wishful thinking. Taking into consideration it might not happen. Okay, And that's the way we hope in today's world. But hope, according to a biblical worldview, is actually something different. It's something that knows, because of other factors, that what we hope for, the goodness of God, is going to happen both in the present and in the future. But again, it's the goodness of God. It is not your exact determination of what God's goodness would be. I often think God would be most good if he would do something for me, heal all my sicknesses and all of my diseases. I think that would be the most good. How many of you have wanted that but not received it, right? You've wanted healing but not received it. Maybe there is good in something that you don't receive, okay? Okay. Maybe there is a greater good. All of us have heard this phrase, serving the greater good. What happens when we serve the greater good? The minor good or the little good often gets pushed to the side. And we have to embrace this as a part of God's uh, grand work, okay? So, again, hope, therefore, is something like the confidence that by integrating God's redemptive acts in the past with trusting human responses in the present, the faithful will experience the fullness of God's goodness in the present and in the future. This then makes the real issue not hope itself, but that which gives rise to hope in what the, uh, what the Apostle Peter would call the reason for your hope. The reason for your hope. Okay, so let me explain this and let's get into the nitty-gritty of this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says this, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. That is a significant first step, okay? Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer To everyone who asks you to give the, say it with me, church, reason for the hope that you have. Do you notice that it doesn't say, revere Christ as Lord and tell people your hope? There is a difference between that which you hope for and the reason you hope for it. And this is where the difference in hope lies. The difference in a Greek worldview and in a Christian worldview. This is the hiccup or the struggle that people are dealing with with respect to faith and its definition in our culture. And I will get further into that in just a second. But instead, Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. How many of you know the reason for your hope is not Jesus saves, although that's kind of included in some way. If somebody says, what do you hope for? Ah, Jesus saves. I would ask you the question, why do you believe that? What's the reason why you think Jesus saves? Do you know the difference in that? So if somebody tells me, hey, Nathan, I'm going to pick you up at 10 o'clock from the airport. I'm going to pick you up at 10 o'clock. What is my hope That I'm going to get picked up at 10 o'clock. What is the reason I should wait for them? What is the reason for my hope? I trust them. They said they would be there. So, yes, I do want to get where I'm going. But again, that's another hope pushed down the line. Where do I want to go? I want to go somewhere. That's fine. But what is the reason why I believe the person's going to pick me up? I trust them and they've said so. I trust them and they said so. And if you uh, are struggling to understand where uh, where your hope in Advent lies, where the reason for your hope lies, it's found in asking the question, why do we put hope in baby Jesus? Why do we put hope in this season? Why do we put hope in what God has done for us? Why? Your hope is not Jesus came to earth. Jesus did come to earth, but why? And why should you believe it, okay? These are really important things, okay? So when we get to Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, it says, now faith is the confidence in what we hope for. Do you notice what's required to have confidence in what you hope for? Faith is like me trusting the person to pick me up at the airport. Because they've said so. Faith is not someone's going to pick me up at the airport. Please know the difference in this, right? When you begin to explain your hope or the reason for your hope, you are getting to why you should trust God. Otherwise, you are like many Christians espousing a Greek worldview and you just keep restating your hope, going, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. This is what happens when you ask the world, do they believe in God? And they say, I believe in God. Okay, that's your hope. You believe in God. Why do you believe in God? They're like, I don't know, but I believe in God, right? Or why do you believe in God? I don't know, but this stuff couldn't have happened just out of nowhere. That's a good stab at it, but it's not the why behind it, right? And the reason why it feels we have lost the the heart of Christmas is because we've actually looked at the hope, but we've not connected why it even matters. Why does it actually make any sense to us? Jesus came 2,000 years ago as a baby boy, born to a virgin. Okay? Why do you believe that? Do you know why you believe that? Think about what we just said was the reason why I'm going to wait at the airport at 10 o'clock. Why do we believe Jesus came 2,000 years ago, born as a virgin? The Bible tells us so. No matter what the world wants to say about that answer, it is one sufficient answer, (laughs) right? And guess what? You learned that in kids' church because the Bible told me so. Is that enough? Not in the skeptical world we live in. Because the next question comes, why do you trust the Bible? You have a hope. That is that the Bible is God's word, that the Bible is true, that the Bible is helpful in your life, giving you answers for all of these matters. But why do you trust it, right? We need to get ourselves back to the hope or the why of the hope. So faith is defined as the confidence in what we hope for. Uh, And the assurance of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Do you notice what ancient Israelites were commended for? They were commended for believing in the why. That it was expressed in action, right? Faith is the confidence in what we hope for. A Messiah is coming. Why did they believe that? Because God was trustworthy. Because, Because God was good. And they did this. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Presents? No. Why do we celebrate Jesus? You've got to answer this question. And why is Jesus coming 2,000 years ago even matter? Why is a baby? Why born as a virgin? These are important things to understand with regard to your hope or the reason why. In Luke chapter 2, verse 25 through 35, this won't be on the screen, but I would ask you to turn there with me. In Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 25, just too much to fit on one slide here. Starting at verse 25, we read a story of a man named Simeon. And we're about to read another story right after it of a woman named Anna. And look at what happens in here. It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem, starting at verse 25 of chapter 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. Love those descriptors of this person. He was a good guy. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. There's a significant uh, story right there, a, st- a significant part to the story right there, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Now, if somebody walks into the temple and presents a baby and says, This is the Messiah but God hasn't told you anything, what are you going to do? You should do what you should do, which is go, where did that come from? Why are you saying this? What's your evidence? What's your proof? There's nothing wrong with this, church. Evidence and proof are attached to faith. Faith is the substance and the evidence of what you have faith in, what you trust. What you hope for, right? So he says, the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, verse 27, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. God had promised something, not just to Simeon, but to the whole of Israel, and God had Uh, pressed upon Simeon by his Holy Spirit that something was going to happen. And Simeon looks at this and says, I can put my hope in here. Why? Why can I put my hope? Because God said so. Because God actually came and told me this was true. Now you look at that and you say, well, Nathan, that sounds like the Greek worldview as well. That's highly subjective. Lots of people think they hear from God. Okay? Okay. And that is true. And this is a matter that we have to wrestle with. This is a matter that will never go away. There are going to be people in this room and people all throughout the Christian world that say, I feel like God told me to do X, and they walk accordingly. Do I think that that is bad or wrong? No. I think that's how we should listen to God and how we should operate. We should try to commune with the God of the universe. Now, we should always run that through a filter, right? God told me to go murder people. (laughs) No, he didn't, right? You have misheard, right? But if you hear God and you understand that what he has told you to do aligns with his heart and his commands and his ways, then it's okay. And although that sounds subjective, we'll talk in a second why this matters, Although that's subjective, it becomes a part of your testimony, and this is really important. So verse 33 goes on, The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about them. Then Simeon blessed them and uh, and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. All of a sudden, Mary's hope of her baby boy becomes a way larger informed hope. It becomes a a hope that includes something that is fascinating, the falling and the rising of many in Israel, a sign that will be spoken of or against, and a sword that will pierce her very own soul. Because why? Because God has spoken to her. And she needs to take this. Whatever she's hoping in is now becoming fully informed because the why behind her hope is there. Why am I stressing this? I know some of you look at this and go, what does it matter, Nathan? I understand hope and I understand the why behind hope. So many people are asking why we have hope and all we keep giving them is what we hope in. We're not telling them why, and the world is banging down the door asking for why, we hope. The world is wondering what is with these kooky people celebrating Christmas about some boy born thousands of years ago. What does it even matter? And all we do is we go, Jesus is the reason for the season. That's not good enough. That is not the hope we have, or if it is the hope, there is a why behind it. And what they're looking for is the reason why, okay? So we must focus on this. Many of our hope in this room, many have a simple hope that has no evidence behind it, and you're winging it. You're hoping that it's true. What you have done there is put your faith in faith. That's not faith. You have put your hope in hope. That is not hope. That's a Greek worldview. What will be will be. That's what you're doing. That's not how the scripture talks about faith. And so uh, Mary cherished these ideas, so the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a source will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband 70 years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. There's a lot of debate on the actual numbering there but anyway she never left the temple but worshiped night and day fasting and praying now look at what happens here coming up to them who is them mary and joseph and who else of course jesus who else is here simeon, simeon. make sure you realize this she's come up to them at the very moment at the very moment that simeon is talking about this stuff right She gives thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. What is the reason why Anna believes this story? What is the reason why? That we can see from the text, not something that we add, well, God must have spoken to her or or she had some premonition or some idea. No, what did she come upon? Simeon talking about this one who is, in fact, God. A testimony moves this woman to tell the world about Jesus. The reason why, the reason why this woman has hope is because she heard the testimony. There are going to be people in this world that have hope in King Jesus, and the only reason why is because they hear your testimony. They hear you say, the reason why is, I once was blind and now I see. Now, is that enough? Maybe not. Maybe there will, become, uh, there will come a day when doubts enter their mind and struggles come, and somebody else or God in some other way will work through that and grow them and shape them. But it can be the thing that causes you to move forward. It was for Anna. She comes, she hears it, and she moves, and she begins to tell the world about who King Jesus is. Guys, there are a lot of reasons why we hope. We hope because the word of God says so. Do you know what this serves as, this book that is the account of of many authors over thousands of years of time pointing to the exact same truth in the same story? Do you know what it serves as? It's a historical record. Do you trust historical records? I would say on a large part you do, right? Right? So you trust them. Would it be admissible in a court of law? Of course it would. You have an accounting of what took place. And so you say, why do I believe in King Jesus? Why do I think 2,000 years ago this baby mattered? Because I have an entire book that tells me he matters. Okay? Is that enough for the world? Maybe not. Maybe not. But it is an important why for you. What else could be there? God speaks to people directly. Now, we have it recorded in the scripture in in a beautiful codified way, but, but God spoke through prophets, and he spoke through wise individuals over all of time. What are people believing and why? They actually believe God is walking with them and talking to them, okay? And so this becomes a huge why, Now, some of those go, that's just subjective nonsense. Nathan, I can't buy that stuff. Okay, let's take it another step further. We won't just take the word of mouth of biblical authors or even the supposed word of God to people. Let's start testing the evidence. Let's start testing the evidence of what God said would happen thousands of years before it ever happened. And then, without fail, the promise keeping God comes through. He makes a promise, he keeps it. He makes a promise, he keeps it. He makes a promise, he keeps it. Do you you know what that goes to? This is is evidence of character, right? We're starting to see that he follows through with who he is. Can you trust that one? Well, yeah, I'm trusting the person picking me up at the airport at 10 for that same reason. They said they'd pick me up before. I trusted him, they did. They said they'd pick me up before. I trusted him, they did. So I'm going to this evidence of character over time. What an amazing thing. What we're getting at and what will recapture the beauty and the mystery and the the romance of Christmas is to actually get to hope and the reason why we have it. Not just Christmas presents and not just time with family. How many of you are more stressed with time with family than you should be? That can't be your freaking hope, right? This is awful. You're like, these people suck. Okay, I can't do this. I need Jesus. That's what you need. Really, you do need Jesus. I mean, this is true, right? But you need a reason to hope in that. Beyond just the preacher told you so. Although that can work, right? It needs to be bigger than that. Something of scripture and prophecy that has always just been so amazing to me is Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. It's on the screen here. Isaiah 7 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Okay. I I love the fact that God writes to us, I love the fact that God speaks to us, I love the fact that God's character and his action repeated over time confirm that he's faithful and that he's true, but I also love the fact that God goes, I know you need one, so I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign that what I say is true. This is a reason for your hope, church. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Why is it the Lord himself? Because Mary, uh, Mary is engaging with the Holy Spirit, and this is how uh, Jesus is conceived in this world. He is the one who gives the Son. This is the Lord himself acting. He'll give you a sign, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. When we look back on Jesus, and when we look back on human history after it's all over, we will see these things in much more vivid detail. But God with us, and the names that are mentioned in Isaiah, are actually uh, three, and they are actually symbolic names of of uh, a particular, potentially a particular child of the day, as well as a further uh, uh, prophecy of Jesus to come. Right. And so what these names symbolize matter deeply for us because we start to see why we would hope in this little boy, okay? Jesus comes and you go, okay, God said he'd send a little boy. What does it matter? Here's where another why comes in. The names mean uh, various things. They mean something like imminent judgment. Number two, they mean coming restoration. And number three, they mean future redemption, Okay, The names of God found in Isaiah mean imminent judgment, or the child, imminent judgment, coming restoration, and future redemption. Do you notice that when you say Jesus is coming, you go, cool, why? And then when God says a why, it makes you jump. It makes you uh, excited. God is coming, Jesus is coming, coming to bring imminent judgment to those who felt the judgment was not on their side, to those who felt that they were being oppressed and broken, this is a wonderful why. When's the last time when you celebrated Christmas, you saw this as the time when the Savior came to stop imminent judgment and to bring about judgment towards others? No, just about my naughty list and my nice list. And who's getting presents? No, it's more than that, church. Those things are wonderful expressions of something different, right? Of the king that Jesus is. But imminent judgment, coming restoration. How many of you, when you wake up on Christmas morning, look at everything that you have and your family gathered together and you think, Jesus came to restore. And he has restored me. Or do you forget that? I forget it. And this is why the romance of Christmas disappears, because the why I've given it is just time with family and time for presents, and that gets old. It disappears too quickly, okay? But when I understand that Jesus is something more, the the one to bring imminent judgment, the one to bring restoration, the one who brings redemption, he is going to redeem all of the past, the lies, the hate, the hurt, the pain. He is going to redeem that. When's the last time you woke up on Christmas morning and you thought, hey, even if it's not in this life, the good of redemption is coming. That is why we celebrate church. How many of you have faced something in your life, you're like, I really need it redeemed because it, it breaks me daily. I struggle with things that have broken me daily. Where is my hope? Jesus came. That's not, okay, yes, it's true. Why did Jesus come? Did Jesus come? To redeem my story, to redeem that pain and that challenge in my life. This is the why. This is the bigger piece. The concept that God is present among his people is also an. Uh, 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 an element of the why of hope that we cannot forget. He is prominent, uh, this presence is prominent in the Old Testament. The symbolic name of Emmanuel can be understood as an affirmation of trust in Yahweh. God with us, right? That's a declaration, God with us. But, But again, what is that statement? God where? God with you. How many of you are more bold when you have you know, that strong person next to you that is willing to fight the fight with you? Yeah, we're more bold. God is declared to be with us. Such affirmations of trust are common in divine promises and uh, prayerful statements of faith. You can see this in Psalm 46 verse 7. God's presence among his people was an important theological symbol for Israel. The presence of Yahweh enters the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. The presence of God. Why does that matter? So that our hope has a reason. So that our hope has a why. The people's sinfulness puts the privilege in jeopardy, right? We, we sin, we fall short of God. But the sign of Emmanuel should be, uh, be a reminder that God is going to redeem even the sin that pushes God away. God's presence remains with Israel. And God's presence now through his spirit remains with us every day. The name Emmanuel symbolizes the full restoration of Yahweh's broken relationships with his people. While the immediate context of the sign itself points to a short-term fulfillment back in Isaiah 7. That's why I mentioned uh, a baby that was born in that time for a purpose. The larger context of Isaiah stresses the future time of redemption, which is King Jesus. And if God can keep the promise in a physical way in Isaiah's day you have a greater reason why you would trust him to pick you up at 10 o'clock at the airport when Jesus shows up, amen? Amen. It's such a beautiful thing. So the coming salvation is depicted in the royal role of Messiah in chapter nine of Isaiah, verses two through eight. And it weaves divine titles into this description and it's just one of the most beautiful passages, right? Because to the Jew, one of the reasons why this hope mattered was that he was a Davidic messiah. He wasn't just going to kick the Roman's butt, right? That That wasn't just it. It was another, after God's heart, this one, God himself, right? God with us. The close relationship between messianic and divine roles and titles supports the understanding of Emmanuel as, again, this messianic figure. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, the Messiah is given a divine right to judge the nations. When you feel oppressed, think about what you you know about the news today, right? You look at the news, and you see this giant debacle and this giant battle between Israel and Hamas, right? Okay, this is present day, but can you imagine the weight and the pressure that these people felt back then? And all of a sudden, they have this promise that this messianic figure is going to do something for them. Judge the nations. That's a reason why I'm going to trust him. I'm going to rest in him. He says that he's coming and he's going to be with us. His reign inaugurates an era of worldwide peace, but it's peace that we don't fully understand. And we'll be talking about that in a couple of weeks. The suffering, death, and destruction that entered the world through sin will eventually be replaced with what? Peace and justice and righteousness. Ultimately, Isaiah says, the predator and the prey, they're gonna live together in harmony. The lion will lie down with the lamb. Chapter 11, verse 6. The time of Emmanuel will reflect the perfection of creation as originally formed in the Garden of Eden. I love this truth. He is the restorer of all things. All you have to do is look at what God has promised and what he has fulfilled. And here's what you can do. You can know that what he claims about King Jesus come to earth 2,000 years ago, born of a virgin, is true and a reason why we should jump up and down. Why we should celebrate every day of our life because God is faithful. So I want to encourage you this week I want to encourage you to reflect on your personal experience. What I mean by that is your testimony. I want you to reflect on this, uh, this experience of hope and the reason why you put your trust in Jesus, which is the story as a whole for you, and how the arrival of Jesus actually fulfills that hope. So what I want you to do is I want you to think back to what your story was in coming to Jesus. And then, and then I want you to write it out. This is for your own purposes. This is for your own edification. I want you to write out why Jesus actually coming to do those things has changed your life. Because it has, or we need to have a deeper conversation about what you believe. Right? It either has Or we need to have a deeper conversation about what you believe. This concept uh, of hope uh, is also an anchor for our soul, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6, verse 19. This, again, will be on the screen. And if you're a note taker, I want you to really look to Hebrews 6 during the season. I think it's very helpful Uh, it's an anchor for our soul and how it sustains people in the Old Testament as they awaited a promised Messiah. God is a promise maker and he's eventually going to be a promise keeper and we need to follow their lead when it comes to what the future looks like because none of us have the future mapped out for us. In the same way, the writer of Hebrews says, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, God's purpose, interposed with an oath So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, there's a reason for your hope too, church. Who do you believe? God. What is true about God? It is impossible for him to lie. How many of you can say it's impossible for you to lie in this room? Good. I'm glad nobody took me up on that one, right? So it's impossible for God to lie, which means his word is trustworthy, okay? interposed with an oath so that two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have been taken refuge, Uh, we have taken refuge, we who have taken refuge, I'll get it right, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. What are we doing here? We're taking hold of the hope, but why are we taking hold of the hope? Did you see what was said? Because of these two things, right? Two unchangeable things which are impossible for God to lie, right? This oath, this promise of God and his inability to lie. We are holding on. We take hold of hope that's set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. It's this hope, through this hope, that we get to go into the presence of God. This hope of King Jesus. Where Jesus has entered as the forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We need to take hold of the hope, church. But in order to take hold of the hope, it's not just a proposition. It's not just Jesus saves. It is, how do we know that's true? God said it, and God can't lie. Those are two important anchors for you as you move forward. I have gone through a lot of stuff as a pastor. I've gone through a lot of things in my own life. And one of the hardest challenges, uh, I believe, that, that I faced along with Sarah before our girls existed was the journey to have people, <laughs> right? To have children. We went through a lot of struggle, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of pain in trying to get pregnant. So much so that between Sam and Kate, we had Four miscarriages. This was challenging. And we had others outside of that. Why did we have any hope at all that we could have a child to begin with? That we should even strive for having children to begin with? That God would give us more children? Why did we have any hope at all? I can assure you we didn't just have the hope because we were two people who wanted to start a family. We truly trusted that God said, be fruitful and multiply, and that he would bless us. Uh, Yeah, but Nathan, there are people who are infertile and they never have children. This is back to my statement about faith and about hope. There is a goodness of God that transcends our understanding. I do not have an answer for those of you who have never been able to have children. I do know that I understand the temporary struggle that we dealt with. Why did I lean forward? Not just because we wanted to have a family, but because I trusted God. Was it because I trusted God that he rewarded me? No, that's not the point. It was just that he made the system and I believed him to be true. And after we had four miscarriages, why did we keep torturing ourselves? Because we felt that God was faithful still. Did our trust in God's faithfulness express itself in an easy life? No. It was hell on earth for a while. But we did know that God is faithful. And why did we know that God is faithful? Because of the things he had already given us, the things he had done, and the things that he had promised to do inside of his word. Even if we didn't understand how it would all unfold we trusted him. We had a hope, but we also had a why. I want you to think through that when it comes to your story and you're reflecting this time. I want you to journal this. I want you to write down this notion and this idea of what God has done to you and what God has done in you and why it matters. It's very, very good for you and encouraging you and pointing you back to the reason why you have any hope. I want you to reflect on how the very birth of Jesus fulfills the ultimate hope for redemption and even salvation inside of your life. And what I'm looking for, for you, for your answers, because you're not turning this in. What I'm looking for for you is that you would see that there are passages after passages after passages that promise that God is a God of redemption and salvation and that he was coming for all of us. It is said in the New Testament that Abraham believed the gospel. What was that gospel? He believed that God would give him what he promised. A promised seed. That that would come. He didn't have any idea what that would look like. He had no idea of what his name would be. But he trusted. And he walked after that. And he went to his death before having received the promise in its fullness, which is what the end of Hebrews says. But what is really amazing is that he walked it all the way out. Because why? Not because he just had hope, but because he had a reason for that hope. If I told you I want you all to trust me tomorrow at 12 o'clock, You should be waiting outside your backyards because aliens are going to come and they're going to take you home to our final resting place. I would, one, hope none of you would trust me, (laughs) right? Right, that's important. But the reason why you wouldn't trust me is because we have no evidence of these things. And Nathan sounds like a lunatic, right? right? That's, that's the reason why you wouldn't trust me. Important, okay? I like that, don't trust me, okay? But many people in the church today have the equivalent of that as their hope. They have no reason why they believe what they believe. And guess what happens when the smallest wind comes? When the smallest fire, when the smallest upheaval hits their life? They run away. They run away because what we're trying to recapture is not merely hope, but the reason for our hope. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal. So when you're studying this week, I want you to look up passages like Jeremiah 29, 11. Not because this is speaking directly to you, but it goes to God's character as a faithful God. I want you to look up Romans 15, 13 that gives God a title, that makes sure that you can trust him. May the God of hope. Who is he? A God who can't lie and the very God of hope that provides you with a future. May he fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Psalm 42, 11. I want you to study this and read, uh, read this idea. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Every one of us have felt that at times in life. David's answer to his own soul, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God? Why, though? Because he is the one who can restore that soul and can bring up the downcast. Because the Bible tells us this over and over and over. I will praise him, David says, my Savior and my God. Romans 8, 24 and 25, for in this hope we were saved. And listen to what Paul says, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Wait a minute, Nathan, you said that hope has substance and evidence. It has some sort of thing. There's a difference between seeing the evidence and seeing the fulfillment of of a thing. You know that, right? Right? I have the evidence that somebody has told me and done uh, the the job of picking me up at the airport repeatedly. It doesn't mean that when I'm hoping, they're already there. I stopped hoping. It's done. I win, right? But in this case, we have hope that that is seen. That's no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But we don't already have things. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, what should we do? Wait for it patiently. There's a lesson the church needs to learn. There's a ch- lesson I need to learn, so don't mishear me. Psalm 71, 14, but as for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. I want you to study Psalm 71 to find out why he will always have hope. Lamentations three, twenty-four. the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Why would you put your hope in the Lord? Because he himself is your portion. He is the fulfillment of the very things that you're desiring. Isaiah 40, 31, uh, 1 Peter 1, 3. There are many, many that I want you to look through. So here's, here's why I had you fill these out to begin with. And I will this week put these all up over time. But I want you to realize that we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility as Christians. And that is not just to hope in things, but to have a reason for our hope. And when there is a hope that we're hoping for, but there is no reason for it, or there is no evidence that God will do it, you need to do the same thing with it that you do with the true hopes. You need to find their fulfillment in the cross. Find their fulfillment in King Jesus. So, if you are hoping for God to take care of your needs... You know, the things that you'll eat, the things that you'll wear, the things that you desire. You know that God says if he takes care of the lilies of the field, he'll take care of you. Did you know that's true? So what you need to do with that is you need to say, there's things that I need in this life. What should I do with them? You should take them to the cross, right? And you should nail these things right there because this is what that baby came to do 2,000 years ago. Not nail with tiny nails, but, right, right? But he came to put these things there so that he could redeem everything that you wanted and desired, everything that was needed for you, okay? But when you have something that is not in God's promise, right, this is wonderful. You want peace? Good. Take it to the cross. That's where you're going to find it. It's the reason why this season exists, because the peacemaker came. But if you go listing something in your list and you say, well, I would like to have X, Y, and Z. Maybe you created a Santa's Christmas list in this. What you need to do is you need to learn to find your joy, not in the thing that you're hoping for, but in the things that God tells you to hope for because they alone will satisfy you. Do you hear me? So you have a responsibility with everything that you hope for, and that is to take it here and to leave it there. And then when you go to celebrate Christmas, you need to remember the God of hope, the God who has given us every reason to trust him came 2,000 years ago. And the reason I'm joyful on Christmas, the reason I celebrate with my family, and the reason I exchange gifts to celebrate this new king that came. The reason I do this is because the one I'm celebrating is far greater than anybody else knows. Because I have a lot of whys behind my hope. I have a lot of reasons for my hope. And then when people ask you this season, why do you do this? You know what I want you to do? I don't want you to, ask Je- I don't want you to answer Jesus is the reason for the season. I want you to answer with a why behind Jesus being the reason. I want you to say, if somebody says, why do you do this? Why is this so important to you? Why don't you teach your kids about Santa Claus or whatever it is, right? When you do this, I want you to say something like, because the real reason is a man who came 2,000 years ago, a God man who came 2,000 years ago, the only one who could to come and redeem all of humanity and take it upon himself to wash our sins clean and to make us whole and new and right before our God. And the reason why I know that's true is because God has kept every promise he has ever stated. And I would love to share those promises with you. I would love to tell you more about this one that I celebrate. Because when you are so bold as to say things like that, the world will take note. They might look at you like they did Jesus and think you're crazy. So what? They might also look at you and say, I deeply want that. I don't want what I have. I don't want to go through another season of holidays where I'm just mad that my family is dysfunctional and crazy. I want to have a peace and a hope and a a joy that transcends all of this stuff. There's only one that does that, church, and that's King Jesus